That's nice. So beginning a new year uh, means beginning a, 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 sometimes, it doesn't have to, it's just something we do, maybe beginning a new um, area of study or a new way to look at some things. It's a time of year when people are always making promises to themselves, uh, promises to other people. We're going to get healthier. We're going to stop bad habits. We're going to improve our, our life in one way or another. We call them resolutions. I'm not sure why the beginning of the year is the time for people to do that. I'm not sure how that started, but it seems like a natural time for people to do those kinds of things. And uh, a lot of people will, uh, you know, make the promise that they're going to read through the Bible in a year. That's a popular one among churches, read through the Bible in a year. Um, give me a call when you get to Leviticus. We'll see how you're doing. Um, because it gets a little tough uh, come about March when you have to hit some of that stuff. But we are going to start um, for the next few weeks uh, looking at something a little different. I want to preview that just briefly this morning. I'm going to read some verses to you, and I want you to think as we look at these verses, I want you to think about what they have in common and think about how we look at the life that is to come and what that means for us. The first is Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then back to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Not the most uplifting and uh, happy verses, to start off this morning, a lot about what happens if you don't have Christ. If you're not in Christ, if you live a life of sin, we know what the result of that is, a separation from God, a punishment. We, some might say there's some debate on what exactly hell is, and we won't get into all of that, but it's not heaven. And that's where we want to be. And yet... There are plenty of verses in Scripture that talk about the result of our separation from God. Without Jesus Christ, we end up in the fire. There's a lot of ways we can look at that. We can choose to look at that as a hopeless sort of outlook. We can choose to look at it as being unfair. When you think about it, the, we understand the human condition. We understand humanity. We are sinful people. We are weak and we are fickle and we are easily distracted. And everybody's going to find that out when you make New Year's resolutions. Because you're going to be gung-ho for a little while, and then you're going to fall off the wagon a little bit on whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. The especially disciplined people don't need to make New Year's resolutions because they can start or stop a good habit any time they want. But those who make New Year's resolutions typically need New Year's resolutions, and they don't always last. Because we're human, and that's okay. But when we read verses and we understand Scripture to say, you must abide in the Lord through Jesus Christ, or you will be separated from the Lord. That can seem rather unfair, because if God made us this way, then why did he make that the result of us being who we are? 
And if we're completely hopeless and helpless in that, and I know that's kind of the point because that points us to Jesus, but if that's the case, how do we break out of that? What do we do? I think the way we look at it often uh, is very similar to a, an important social experiment that was conducted back in the 70s. It's called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. You might have heard of it. Walter Mischel was a social scientist, and he took a group of children and put them in a room, sat them down, and in front of them he sat a big marshmallow. And he said to them, here is a marshmallow. And they said, duh. And he said, if in 15 minutes, I'm going to leave the room, and in 15 minutes I'll come back, and if you haven't eaten your marshmallow, I will give you a, an additional treat. But if you want to eat the marshmallow, you can eat the marshmallow. But you're not going to get the extra treat. And so they left the room, and they observed these children. It was a study in delayed gratification. It was a simple, simple scenario. Here is a treat. You can have it now, and that's it. Or you can wait. And if you can wait, you get more. You get something better. I think sometimes that's how we look at this life. We look at life as a delayed gratification test. God says... Don't do these things that you might really like to do in this life. And if you can abstain from enough of these things that you naturally want to do, then when I come back, you get something better. I think we look at life that way. I just have to say no to something that really looks good because God promised when he comes back, he's going to give me something better. I think we see our condition that way sometimes. We see our condition as a transactional test of delayed gratification. And that's how we live. It was really interesting, it's really interesting to read about the different methods that some of these kids used for delaying gratification, for avoiding. Of course, there was always the kid, and it would have been me that just grabbed it and shoved it in their mouth and said, why, why wait 15 minutes? You know, I can have it now. And then there were those who would busy themselves with play. They would go play with something else. They would ignore that the treat was there in order to avoid the temptation. Interesting stuff. But I think that's how we look at life all too often. My question this morning, and the question we're going to look at over the next few weeks, is what if we examined life differently? What if we looked at life differently than some test of our willpower and delayed gratification? What if we accepted the fact that hell is inevitable for those who are outside of Jesus Christ. At the very least, if we accepted that death is absolutely inevitable for all of us, and that there will come a time where we will be judged. Instead of looking at life as do more good than, than bad, and we get the reward, what if we just accepted that hell is the default position of humanity? Would we behave differently? Think about it this way. People who know their fate live differently. People who understand that life is rapidly coming to an end do crazy things. They travel more. They do the things they always wanted to do but never had the chance to do. They approach life differently when they understand its finality. People that see their children getting older 
and it hits them all of a sudden that they have kids about to leave the nest, they start soaking up every minute of that time, doing all the things that they haven't done before that they wanted to do. They will set aside and go to the extreme to make time to spend with people that they know they're going to have less time with. People who are terminally sick will seek out experimental treatments and clinical trials. And they'll do all the things that they never otherwise would have gotten to do. We call this attitude having nothing to lose. I got nothing to lose. Time is slipping away. I think the fact that we need to accept and maybe embrace, and this is what we're going to look at these next few weeks, is this idea. Every one of us is terminal. We are all terminal. And what awaits us if we do not have Jesus Christ is hell. You see, normally we look at it like there's a fork in the road. And we're going to choose to do the good thing or the bad thing, and that's going to get us down either one of those roads. What if the road itself, and this is how Jesus describes it as a wide, well-traveled road, what if that's the road we're all on? And what if there is one path off to the side that is Christ. And that's what we choose. If we know that death is inevitable and we know that hell is the default position of humanity, does that change the way we live if we choose Christ? Do we have nothing to lose? And do we live like people who have nothing to lose? Because if, if hell is what awaits us without Christ, and we choose Christ, the only chance to escape it, doesn't that kind of give us permission to go crazy? Doesn't that kind of give us permission to be radical, knowing our fate without Christ? Isn't that license to be radical in all we do and in how we live? We honestly have nothing to lose. If hell is the default, why would we hold back and only sort of try in our daily life, in our relationship with God, in our relationships with one another. We have permission to be radical in Jesus, in our relationship with him, and to kind of live like crazy people. Now, obviously, there are some times when Christians are considered crazy by society. We're not mainstream. Just the idea of believing in God and in his son Jesus and in this life to come, that's not really mainstream. It never has been, even at times where the world itself was more and more religious. It's not really a mainstream thing. I'm not talking about separating ourselves from society, closing off. There are groups that do that and have done that for all of time, and that's what they choose to do. I don't think that's what we're called to do. What we're called to is not only a transformation of our own life internally and of our body and our unit internally, but also in how we interact externally. It's a question of, will you live with one foot in the world and one foot in heaven? Or will you jump in both feet to living a radically Christian life? Because you have nothing to lose. You have a terminal illness called humanity, knowing that empowers us to really be crazy about our faith, to really be radical in how we live. The distinction 
the distinction is becoming a little bit thinner between the Christian and the mainstream of the world. The Christians look more and more like the world. The people of faith tend to act and speak and think more like the world. Because over time, that's what the world does. It draws you in. There's a sermon I heard years and years ago that Bruce McClarty preached. Um, he was a preacher for a number of years in Searcy and was the president of Harding University for a while. He talked about something called arm's-length Christianity, that we as Christians hold the world at an arm's length, and we say we're not of the world. But the world continues to move, and I'm standing here, and the world is here, but as the world moves further and further that way, into sin and worldliness and material things. I keep it at arm's length, still just as far from the world as I was before, but now I'm standing where the world used to be. How much are we letting the world pull us its direction? How much do we stand out? And how different do we really look from the world around us? Christians nowadays generally have almost ubiquitous social and political viewpoints. Our news media refers to the evangelical voting block as though we are one universally thinking unit. When we begin to be drawn into those conversations and thought about that way, how different really are we from the rest of the world? We look and we sound like everyone else, but we have Jesus, so technically we're different, right? I don't know if that's how people live when they have nothing to lose. I don't know if that's how people live when they've been given permission to jump in and be radically different. We don't want to be antisocial. That's not how we're called to live, even though there are some who choose to be that way. We are called not to be strange and off-putting, but to be radically different from the world around us. We, we aren't physical beings having a spiritual moment. We are spiritual beings having a physical moment. We have to think of ourselves that way. We existed, made in God's image, put into this world, but we will last far beyond this world. And so rather than physical beings having a spiritual moment, we should think of ourselves as spiritual beings having a physical moment because this time is temporary and how we spend it matters for eternity. So how are we to be radical? What do we do with this permission to go crazy with our faith? Let's look at some examples of that. Remember, death comes for us all. Hell is the default. We aren't just in some delayed gratification experiment. We are terminal in our humanity, and we now have the time left to go nuts and to reach for things that we have never imagined. So think about how we can be radical in our faith. Think about how we can be different than the world, and think about the ways we're called to be different. These next few weeks, we're going to look at different areas of Christian living where the Bible and Scripture and Jesus calls us out to be different from how the world does it. And we're going to examine how does the world define these things, and how does the world do it, and then how should we be doing it. And we're going to push ourselves and stretch ourselves to be a little more extreme. 
in carrying out the task that we've been assigned by our Lord? How can we be different? Can we be radically different or just sort of different? Think about worship. Now, lots of people go to worship. Lots of people attend houses of worship of various faiths and various denominations within a faith. A lot of people do what we're doing. How can we be radical in our worship? What if instead of just showing up to sing some songs and to hear a lesson and to fellowship, which are all good things, what if our worship was about being, focusing every part of our life on glorifying God? What if worship wasn't just a one-hour-a-week thing? What if it was attuning our hearts and directing our steps every, every day toward glorifying our Lord? We're told to love one another, right? That's something that's supposed to make us different as Christians. And we are, we are supposed to be a loving people. And I understand, some people make it harder than it should be. I get it. People are hard to love. When we say that we love others, what if we actually loved people with no precondition, with no expectation? What if we truly embodied the love that Jesus showed? What if we truly embodied the love that Christ demonstrated on the cross? What if every person we met, we did not think of them as good people or bad people or indifferent people or what they deserve or how they've treated us? What if we remembered that the same grace that saved us in the blood of Christ on the cross saved that person who is treating us horribly? What if we looked at people as saved sinners? That's... That's, how, that's what we are. That's how we want to be seen. We want people to be gracious and loving and kind and forgiving because we're sinners and we're saved by the blood of Christ. And Jesus loves me, so you should too. But we don't treat people that way. The same Savior that died for you died for your worst enemy. What if we loved that way? Oh, boy. Christianity is often defined as people who abstain from things. We are an abstinent people, not obstinate, that's different, abstinent. We, we don't indulge in the things of this world. We don't get into to substances and we don't get into the immorality and the, and the pleasures of the flesh. We don't, it, we, we don't engage in those things, right? We try to avoid doing the bad things. We don't do the sinful, ugly, bad things. What if we were radical in our thinking about that? Because that's a very transactional, delayed gratification way of looking at our life with Jesus. What if instead of being a people who simply abstain, we didn't just avoid sin, but we actively fought Satan in the spirit? Instead of just not doing bad behavior, what if we attacked and fought this spiritual battle with Satan every day? What if we invoke the name of God? against temptation? And what if we saw behavior not as a good or bad thing for us, but as a projection of how we live in grace and in forgiveness? And what about prayer? We're supposed to be a people of prayer. What if prayer for the radical Christian wasn't just talking to God? But what if it was a continuous dialogue with our Father? What if we were in constant communication? What if we were people 
who had an ongoing open dialogue. Now, there's a time to sit and in reverence and meditation reflect on God and to talk to God in a certain way, just like there are different ways to have different conversations with our own parents. I will call my dad up to talk for five minutes about something one of my kids said that we think is funny. And I'll call him up to have deep conversations. Today's his birthday, so I'll call him and talk to him about his birthday. We text even throughout the days and keep in touch about what's going on. Different tone, different approach, different conversation for different purposes. What if we didn't think of prayer as just a spiritual discipline? but as the lifeblood of communication with our God and the sustaining power for our spiritual life. I think that we should look at our life in Jesus, look at our life in Christianity and in faith differently. I fall into the trap way too often of thinking, okay, I'm going to white-knuckle this thing. I just got to get through this life without doing the bad things and only do the good things, and at the very least, just do the bad, don't do the bad things, right? I don't know how often I think, let every step I take today glorify God. That's a different mentality. Just avoiding the bad things is not making every step glorify God. But our attitude of delayed gratification, our attitude of transactionalism, in our relationship with God, makes us that way. Because we have refused to accept that we are in a terminal condition. Destined for death, and apart from Jesus Christ, destined for hell. And if I know that my condition's terminal, then I have just been given license to go crazy. I have just been given license to be radical in my thinking about my faith. And all the things that we hold back on and all the things that we temper and all the things that we do halfway can be thrown out the window to fully embrace the life that God has planned for you because you have nothing to lose. And there's no reason to settle for less. So the next few weeks we're going to look at some of those items that we just mentioned there and see what the Bible has to say. And see what examples we can find in Jesus, in his life, in the life of other spiritual forefathers and spiritual examples that we have. And maybe we can figure out some things we can do better. Maybe we'll find some things we're doing pretty good at. But all in all, I hope that we can kick off 2022 with an attitude that fully embraces the life that God has for us and that can make an impact on the world around us because we will be seen differently we will look very different from the rest of the world because we're supposed to. We're supposed to. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. That's okay, too. Just remember, when you're uncomfortable being vastly different from the world, that when we look so dramatically different from the world around us, and when that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, what that means is that we have a perspective that the rest of the world doesn't have. Um, it's always interesting when people are trying to lose weight or get in shape, you know, when they go on a diet or they do something different, and people notice that they're doing something different, right? And, and, and some people kind of, you know, roll their eyes, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, don't, or start, you know, questioning it, or, you know, don't you need to eat more protein or something like that? 
It's always funny to me that the person that's getting up every morning and going to the gym and adjusting their diet while their friends are kind of laughing at them, all their friends are still fat. Now, why are they laughing at the one person trying to get in shape? Because we're uncomfortable with different. We're uncomfortable being seen differently and being treated differently. But we are the ones who are following a calling that extends beyond this temporary existence. The rest of the world may not understand because the rest of the world does not have the perspective we have. In order to show the rest of the world that perspective, we must have that perspective. And we must be radically different from the world around us. Nobody wants to be a part of a watered-down world. But oftentimes, that's what the church offers. We're just watered-down humanity. Now, we have to be something completely different. That's how we win souls. That's how we show the world we're different. And that's how we love the way Jesus loved. I hope that these next few weeks will be helpful in examining those things. And maybe you'll think of some things on your own. This morning, uh, Jonathan's going to come up and lead us in a, a song. And during that time, if there's anything you need, any help that we can offer along the way, any encouragement or prayers you need, we hope you'll make that known as Jonathan comes and leads.